So I said to you in the intro to this series when we started going through these parables of Jesus that you should try to find yourself in the parables. I think that's exactly what Jesus intend, intends for his listeners to do, to find ourselves in these parables. And this is one that you have probably found yourself in before, you've contemplated before. I said a few weeks ago when we did the Good Samaritan we studied that parable that I, I think that's the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. But I definitely think this one is up there, the parable of the prodigal son, one that we have heard many times if, if you've been raised in church and uh, if you have studied any of the Bible, you've probably heard this parable. But I, I believe there's much for us to learn even today, even from something that maybe we, we think we really know. Let me start with this. The word prodigal isn't found in this story. It is a term that in church history we've, we've come to apply to the younger son, the one that we just read about. It may not mean, or it doesn't necessarily mean what we think it does. Prodigal doesn't mean lost. Prodigal doesn't mean rebellious. Prodigal means extravagantly wasteful. For some of us, when we challenge ourselves to, to find ourselves in the parable, we easily see ourselves as the younger son. That's me. From the time that I was very young, my mom raised me to know and love God. My earliest memories was my mom pointing me to Jesus. She always made sure I was in church, that I went to Sunday school, on Wednesday evening, I was at RAs. I have no idea if anyone today knows what an RA is. Sarah does, Sam. Royal Ambassadors for Christ. We listened to music that honored God. She kept me from movies and television that she didn't think would be pleasing to Him. Our lives revolved around Christ and His church, and my mom's faith was and is to this day still very authentic. And there was a like, fruit in my life that I saw. I can remember praying at a young age. I remember depending upon God during difficult times. I remember asking for forgiveness, being worried about sin in my life. And I remember wanting to learn what it meant to serve Him. But as a teenager, temptation creeped into my life. Very familiar temptation that hits a lot of teenage boys and more and more and more that temptation gripped me. And by the time I got to my early 20s, I did not even recognize the kid that the pastor at Carson Road Baptist Church once told everyone would grow up to be someone special for the Lord. I didn't even believe God still loved me. I wrestled with whether I was saved and or had lost my salvation and did not believe that God had anything left for me. And for a very long time, I believed that I had extravagantly wasted everything that had been invested in me. So maybe that's you. Maybe you recognize yourself there. Maybe you've come back from that. Maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you are far from God, a God that you once knew and loved. Maybe people 
in your life can't even see that. Maybe they don't know that you feel that way. Maybe you're the only one who knows. You have this hidden, broken heart, and you don't recognize the godly person that you used to be. For some of us, though, we don't immediately see ourselves in this parable. For us, it's someone in our life. A child, a grandchild, someone who at one time knew about God and it seemed like they were close to Him. They were taught and raised, maybe in our home, to love and to serve Christ. Countless hours were invested in helping them to understand what it meant to be a disciple. They were in church, vacation Bible school, maybe other kinds of spiritual activities. You read the Bible to them. They learned memory verses. Maybe it seemed like they did that gladly. But at some point, they began to fade from that faith. Slowly at first, and then maybe it started happening more quickly. At first, it was concerning. Then it became sorrowful, and eventually, extremely frustrating. And maybe... In those lowest of moments that you have, if you would allow yourself to be completely honest with God, it seems like everything you did has been extravagantly wasted. Or maybe it's not about a child or a grandchild. Maybe the prodigal for you is a spouse, a sibling, a friend. A parent. Maybe you worry about the future. Maybe right now, the children that are in your home that you're investing in teaching, maybe you, you worry that one day they will grow up and they will wander from all that you have taught them and invested in them. You're doing the best you can, but you know there are no guarantees. So however we relate to this parable... I want us to know today that Jesus told it very purposefully and there is something that He wants us to gain from it. Whether we see ourselves in this or someone we love or whether we have some concern for the future, Jesus intentionally told this parable in all of its detail that we might learn and, I believe, be comforted in it. So let's start. If you're a note taker this morning in your worship guide, let's start with this life truth, which I think is kind of the core of this parable. Despite how spiritually wasteful someone may have been or someone is right now, Jesus assures us of the extravagant love of our Heavenly Father. No matter how spiritually wasteful someone has been, Jesus wants to reassure us that there is something bigger, greater, something much more magnificent than all that they have wasted, and it is the love of the Heavenly Father. 
The central figure in this parable is not the younger son. We can refer to this as the parable of the prodigal son. I'm calling it the prodigal sons. I'll explain that as we go through the sermon. But really, this is the parable of the loving father. He is the key central figure. A firm yet gracious man who represents to us God. And there are certain attributes about God that Jesus wants us to learn in the telling of this parable. In your notes, first of all, I believe Jesus gives us, through this parable, a fearful warning. And here it is. Sin promises freedom. It promises freedom that it will never deliver. And sometimes, God chooses to give you what you think you want. This is the warning that we could skip over in the parable. Sin promises freedom. It's never going to deliver it. And sometimes God gives you what you think you want. So you have this young son who essentially was impatient for his father's passing. Not saying he didn't love his father or have concern for him, but what he cared about was his inheritance. You normally get your inheritance when your parents die. He was impatient for his father's passing so that he could gain his inheritance. It's a good thing for a young man to want to grow up and learn to make his own decisions. We want our sons and our daughters to do that, to grow up and to learn how to live fruitfully and faithfully on their own. But the son's desire to have this inheritance was not about manhood. It was not about him wanting to be able to make his own decisions. Make no, have no doubts about this. What this was about was his lust for sin. In a faraway place, something called to the son to leave his father's oversight so that he could live to please himself. So that he could live for whatever he desired and whatever seemed good to him. That's what this is about. He could not afford to do that on his own. He couldn't afford to leave and just go live in pleasure of the world. He needed someone or he needed some way to finance that. So he asked his dad for his inheritance. You've not passed away. Just give me what's mine. And as Jesus tells it, the father said, okay. He gave him what he wanted. That's definitely not what we would have expected. Most of us as dads probably just be like, that's what you want to do, you figure out how to do it. We're not told why the father did this. We're not told his motivation or his reasoning. I think we can rest assured he did it with much grief, much sorrow, because he knew what the outcome would be. He knew what would happen when his son 
took that inheritance to go and live as he wanted to live. But maybe he also knew that even if he refused him, he didn't have his son's heart. His son didn't love him and didn't love his ways. So we have to pause here and not just move on to what happens next, because there is a warning here for all of us. And it is this, sin is desirable. We want to sin. The temptation that comes against us, we want to do it. Otherwise, it's not temptation. We're not all exactly tempted the same way. There's some overlap for sure. But there are certain things that tempt you that would not tempt me and vice versa. But everything that we reach for that is against God, we reach for it because we want it. And that starts way back in Genesis 3. When you read the original account, the descriptive language of the text of Genesis 3 in the very first temptation of mankind, Eve saw the tree was good for food. The one thing that God had said, that is for me, you don't touch that. Eve saw that it was good. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desired to make them wise. That's the language. Saw it was good. Delight to the eyes. Desired. That's temptation. James, when you get to the New Testament, James uses the same language in his letter to the church. He says, every one of you are tempted when you are lured and enticed by your own desire. So sin will call out to every natural craving that you have. Sin will call out to every sense that you have and say, this is good. See that it's good. Delight in this. This is desirable. And, honestly, when we give ourselves to it, for a time, it is pleasurable. But what is so desirable to us, what is so delightful to our eyes, what will temporarily bring us pleasure will, without any doubt, kill us in every sense of the word. We are being lured by what will destroy us. That's what temptation is. The answer to this is not more willpower. The answer is, try harder. Have more self-control. The answer is, stay close to your father. Which is what the younger son didn't do. Stay close to your father. Abide with God and he will help you. We're taught that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God is faithful to us, and He will never let us be tempted beyond our ability to withstand it. You will never in this life be able to say, I didn't have a choice. It overwhelmed me, and I could not say no. 
The Bible says, if you're a believer, you were not looking to God. You were not looking for the way out that He provides. Because Paul goes on to say there, when we fill the pool of temptation, God will always provide a way to escape it. He doesn't say, you'll be able to get out of it. He says, God will provide you a way to escape it if you will look to Him and ask. So the the key is not more willpower. The key is more trust and dependence upon your Father. When we're close to God and we feel temptation, we look up and He will help us. Confess to Him everything that you're being tempted to do. He already knows. Take it to Him and say, God, this is my temptation. Will you please help me? Will you please change my heart? Will you please protect me? Will you please give me a way out? That's the picture here. But sometimes we're the prodigal. We separate from God because we don't want His oversight. Sometimes we'll even justify why that sin is okay in this scenario. But either way, we flee to a distant country. We move away from God. And sometimes, sometimes when we are determined to follow our own desires, God lets us have them. Psalm 106 speaks of this. talks about God's children in the Old Testament when He had delivered them out of Egypt. He had delivered them from slavery. Psalm 106 says this, They soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel. But they had wanton or deliberate cravings in the wilderness. They put God to the test, and He gave them what they asked. And it resulted in their destruction. A wasting disease, the Bible says. I'm not talking right now about sin that you stumble into. I'm not talking about temptation that you're actively wrestling with and you're fighting and battling with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and confession and repentance and helping one another, asking for help from one another. But I am saying to us that when we know what we're planning to do, when we are deliberate in meditating on something over and over and over. Look, if you think about something long enough, you will do it. When we play around with sin and temptation, even though we know that's rebellious against God, and we commit those acts anyway, that is dangerous. Sometimes God will give us what we think we want. And the thing that calls out to us, Jesus is telling us in this parable, it is never going to give you what you hope it will. It's never going to deliver on its promises. It's not. You will be enslaved in some far off place that you don't recognize, and you will suffer, and you will long for home. And it will seem like you can't get there.
That is the fearful warning in this parable. But there is also in your notes a profound hope in this parable. And the profound hope is this. Even in your rebellion, God is eager for your return. That He might cover your sin and offer you His blessing. Even in your rebellion, God is eager for your return that He might cover your sin and He might offer you His blessing. Let me say before we get into this, this profound hope is not a license to rebel. You, you cannot say, well, okay, but I can do this and then come back because look at what God will do. I think that is incredibly dangerous. When your heart is so hard that you plan rebellion with the thought of, when I'm done, I'll return and He'll welcome me. That is inviting suffering, death, even if even if in that you're not lost for eternity there's nothing to say that god will allow you the time to do what you're planning to do but if right now you are in rebellion or if you know someone who is this is the profound hope god is eager for your return the emphasis of this story is that this father never stopped loving his son. The emphasis of this story is that this father never stopped being committed to his son. He was eagerly watching for him to come to his senses in return. And like many of these stories we've talked about as we go through these parables, the way Jesus tells this story is not expected by the people who are listening to it. Some of this, it's a little hard for us because we're not first century people living in a, in a Jewish culture. But there are certain things that Jesus says in this story that is completely opposed to what these listeners would have expected to hear. The typical response in that day for a son who had said to his father, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance, and had left to a faraway country to live as he pleased, and then came back, the typical response of that father in that day would have been to have his son beaten, and he would have rejected him. As a matter of fact, some people speculate that the very community that father was in would have seen this son before he ever got to his father's house and would have stoned him. This father, this father, though, runs to his son. Which, by the way, older, dignified men in the Middle East in that day did not run to their sons. This man did. His son covered in all his pig filth. His father sees him before his son reaches home before his son sees his father. His father sees him and he runs to him and he throws himself onto his son. 
And he weeps and he hugs and he kisses him and he welcomes him. He doesn't just give him a handshake and say, do you have something to say to me? Like he runs to him and embraces him. This language that Jesus used would have been striking to these listeners. If anybody in that community was going to harm his son, his father was there to shield that from happening. If they were going to throw rocks at his son, they would have hit him instead. The son had planned to work his way back into his father's home. That was his whole reasoning. I'm going to go back and I'll work and be a servant. And I'll at least get fed. But the father welcomed him. Immediately restored him. Adorned him with the best robe. A ring on his finger. Sandals on his feet. And then ordered a celebration in his honor. A celebration. A party in honor of this rebellious son who had said, I wish you were dead, and had wasted his father's work and everything that his father had built and everything his father had owned. He'd given him half of it, and he wasted it all. And his father throws a celebration in his honor. So whoever comes to your mind... When you put yourself in this parable, the main point is clear. The only hope we have in rebellion is the steadfast devotion of a Father who loves us. Jesus wants us to see this picture of God. Yes, sinners must repent. If you're in rebellion, you must, as The text says, you must come to your senses and repent. But we can only repent if there is a pre-existing love that makes repentance possible. The father didn't love his son because his son repented. The son was able to repent because his father loved him. The love of the Father came first and is what made repentance possible. The Son came back and He was able to come back because the Father was eager for Him to do so and was looking for Him. Right now, whether in this room or if you're watching this later on video, if you find yourself in rebellion to God, and you hear this message, Jesus is answering the questions you have. And I know what those questions are because I lived them for years. When I was, we came here in 2003, I was 25. I had started wrestling with my salvation and desiring what I used to have with God and thinking that God was done with me. I started feeling that way when I was 20 or 21. When we walked into this church for the very first time, when I was 25 years old, I did not believe God loved me. 
No matter how many times someone told me that, I I just didn't believe it. I sat somewhere over there in the back. I sang songs. I had lunch with the pastor. I taught Sunday school. I was as involved as I could be. And the whole time I was trying to ease my conscience. I didn't really believe God loved me. Jesus is saying to you what He was saying to me then. You don't earn forgiveness. You can't. And you don't have to wonder if you come back, if you will be greeted and welcomed. Jesus uses extravagant language to tell you, you will be. You are not the exception to this rule. You are not the one person in the history of mankind that has done such horrible things and sinned so badly that this doesn't apply to you. I said earlier, belief informs behavior. You will only act on what you believe. Through His Word and by His Spirit, Jesus is calling you to this kind of faith. No matter how far you have gone, your Father will not shut you out if you return. No matter how far you have gone, He will not fail to greet you. He will run to meet you. And He will bless you in your return. Because He is eager to be with you. God is eager to be with you and He is eager for you to be with Him. That is what He wants you to believe. And so, Jesus wants you to let the reality of this kindness draw you back. To let the promise of His forgiveness compel you to not wait any longer. Not wait till tomorrow, not wait till next week, not wait till the end of this sermon, but to cry out to Him where you are and return. Confess and humble yourself and come home. And He will greet you. That's the picture. And if you're grieving over someone who is a prodigal, or fearful of that day that you you may have one. There are no guarantees. We don't control anyone. We're responsible for us. And our standing before God and who we are before God is all that... It's all that we can be responsible for. But what you need to know is that your hope is not in them and what they may do. Your hope is not even in them coming to their senses. Your hope is in the pre-existing love of a father. Your hope is in the steadfast love of God who cares for them more than you ever could. So stand watch continually in prayer on their behalf and don't give up. Do not give up. And when it gets tiring and you're weary of it, confess that to God 
Confess that to those around you and keep going in His power. God still does miracles. He still raises the dead to new life, spiritual life. And He can do that in an instant. So don't focus on the one who is extravagantly wasteful. Focus on the one who is extravagantly gracious and loving and kind and merciful to the lost. Hope in Him for yourself and those around you. Let's make one more observation on this text. There are two prodigal sons in this story. We focus on the younger one, but there are two prodigal sons in this story. One wasted his father's investment in reckless rebellion. That's the one we've been focused on. The other one wasted it in hard-hearted service. One wasted his father's investment in reckless rebellion. The other wasted his father's investment in reckless, excuse me, in hard-hearted service. Let me read the rest of the parable to you. If you have a Bible, if you want to look in Luke 15, and by the way, it's always safe. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, let us know. We'd love to gift you with a Bible today. But in Luke 15, let's read the rest of the story because Jesus doesn't end it where, where we stopped earlier. In verse 25, he says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. And this is what he's told. Your brother is here. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and he didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found. We cannot ignore that Jesus introduces this second brother as part of this story, and he's not examined until after the repentance of his younger son or the younger brother. This older boy had also received his inheritance. If you read the text, when the father divided the estate, he gave it to both sons at the same time. And he didn't leave his father's house. He didn't go dive into sin in some faraway country. He stayed near his father. But what becomes very clear is he too is a prodigal. He too is extravagantly wasteful. Because he has extravagantly wasted his father's kindness. I want, I want you to remember why we're even looking at this. What happened? Why is Jesus telling the parable? Remember, started last week. He's now told three parables in succession. And the context was this. There were these religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes, who were upset that Jesus was welcoming sinners and eating with them. 
They were complaining because Jesus was personal and caring and hospitable to people who were sinners. And He would spend time with them. People who were outside the faith and people who had horrible reputations and people who had rebelled against their faith. Tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors who had rebelled and went to work for the Romans. And these religious leaders thought that was sinful and defiling. And we talked about last week how they loved their religious acts more than they loved lost people to come near to God. So surely, if we think about that, what we can see is this older brother is these religious leaders. Jesus is pointing to them. On the surface, this older brother was faithful to his father. But the surface is the only place that was true. He didn't share his father's heart. It's not just that he struggled with forgiveness of his younger son. I mean, if we're honest, I think any of us in that situation would struggle with that. We would go, well, wait a minute, but where's the consequences? Where's the truth here? Where's, you know, we need to hammer him a little bit. Like the best robe, the ring, the celebration, like this is, this is a little much, right? That really though, wasn't the problem. The problem was he was bitter at what he wasn't getting. For him, he was bitter at what he felt was his own dishonor. His argument was, Dad, I've earned my place. I've never done anything like this. I never took what you gave me and went and Spend it all on prostitutes? I've been right here, next to you, slaving away, doing all the good stuff. Where's my goat? Where's my party? Where's my celebration? Where's my honor? Why are you doing for me what you're doing for the sinner? He had been near to his father in proximity this whole time. But he had wasted it all because he was far from his dad in character. See, some prodigals are really easy to spot. They're far away, they're living immoral lives, they're rebellious, they're wasteful. But some prodigals are not very easy to spot because they're nearby. They're religious. They're upright they're moral, but they don't share God's love for people. And if they do share God's love for people, that love for people does not outweigh their love for themselves. They care about their own honor. They care about what is right and fair and good to them because of their work. I said earlier, we have to find ourselves in the parable. We have to be careful that it's not right here. That we're not the older brother. Because sometimes our prodigal heart is not revealed until we see God, re God blessing sinners and rebellious people. Until we see God calling out to people that we despise and doing good to people that we oppose.
And then in our hearts we say, but what about me? Why have I prayed so long for that thing and done so many good things and been so faithful and I've never gotten the thing that I prayed for? And that person, I know what they've done and I know where they've been and look how God is blessing them. Why? What about me? A man once said, sometimes what separates us from God is not our sin, but our damnable good works. Because we perceive ourselves to be good and our alienation from God is masked. We don't see that we're far from Him too. When that younger son's life went up in smoke, he knew where to find the fire. He knew what the problem was, his rebellion. He could return from that. When the older son's life went up in smoke, he didn't get it. Why me? Why is this happening? Because to him, he had been really, really good. He had trusted in all of his faithful works. And it goes back to the thing that we've been talking about now for several weeks. When you're not aware of the immensity of your own sin and the grace of God in forgiving you, then you don't really know how to love Him and love other people. Sinners who repent will experience affection from God before pridefully religious people will. Sinners who humble themselves will know affection from God before really religious people who don't know the immensity of their own sin will experience affection from God. So the answer there is, Not go be a really rebellious person. The answer is, be humble. Know nothing you have is deserved. If God, if God has graced you to have faithfully served Him for years, what an honor. What an honor. That has earned you a thing. What an honor that He has kept you from suffering in a faraway place and He has allowed you to be near to Him. What an honor that is. Rejoice in that because you don't deserve it. None of us do. It's easy, somewhat easy for me to be amazed I walked through those doors 19 years ago. Someone had told me that one day you're going to be teaching. And one day you're going to be the pastor of this church. All I wanted to do was not go to hell. I'm not trying to be funny, but that that was my goal. But man... I'd love to have avoided all of that. Love to have. But if I had, wouldn't have meant I earned this spot. It's all about Him. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to ask the worship team if they'll come up. But before we scatter, um, I want to ask Mike 
Darden. He's going to come up and actually end this today. So Mike's going to lead us into our time of prayer, and I just ask him to direct us this morning, however the Lord led him to. But please get your worship guide out and look at the prayer focus on the front. And Mike is going to lead us into prayer and worship. If you'll notice in your in the prayer focus, it's Luke fifteen thirty two. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Our prayer focus for this week is exactly this, that our compassion for people will be incredibly strong, especially for those that do not know the love of Christ. As I was studying this this week, I came across a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and I'd like to share that with you. The truth taught in this parable is just this. The mercy stretches forth her hand to misery, that grace receives men as sinners, that grace deals with demerit, unworthiness, and worthlessness, that those who think themselves righteous They are not the objects of divine compassion, but the unrighteous, the guilty, the undeserving. They are the proper subjects for the infinite mercy of God. In a word, that salvation is not of merit, but it is of grace. My focus for a long time was on the younger son. I could see myself so much in him from everything that I had squandered in my life. But upon realizing the saving grace of Jesus Christ, it's amazing that my attention began to go to the elder son. And how much I have focused on him, hoping and praying that I did not become self-righteous, hard, and couldn't see the grace of God and have compassion for others. You know, the part of Spurgeon's quote that gets me the most is this, that those who think themselves righteous are not the objects of divine compassion, but the unrighteous, the guilty, the undeserving, and the proper subjects for the infinite mercy of God. I think my word for this week is compassion. To be able to see the areas in need and to be able to give it. And as we enter into this time of service, if the prayer partners today will make their way up, I'd like to encourage us as a church and as individuals to pray that our compassion would outweigh our religious egos and maybe even our self-righteousness to the point that the latter no longer exists. So if you will, as we enter in, let me pray for us. And David will be over here on our right. If you feel like you have a need that needs to be addressed with him, if you know Jesus Christ and you're struggling, or if you don't know who Jesus is and you feel like you need that time, he'll be over here to talk with you. The prayer partners, as we said, will be over here to your left for any need that you may have. 
So let's pray. Lord, as you stand today, God, at the proverbial property line and you look into the distance, waiting for a glimpse of the lost returning. I pray today that we are in a position, God, that we place ourselves there. That we may peer over your shoulder with the same desire. We pray that our compassion for those who don't know you would continue to look more and more like ours. I mean that ours would look more like yours, Lord. I'm sorry. May we begin to see more clearly your gift of inheritance is not limited just certain people, but God, anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus. And as the Spirit leads us, may we always react with compassion and judgment or jealousy and to always look for those areas to where we could be like you.